Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. Now, I know a lot of my audience members out there enjoy learning about the fascinating history of the Michigan shipping industry on the Great Lakes. And I've even had some messages from some of you guys about that. And they especially enjoy the stories of lost ships and shipwrecks. So today I have a special guest who you're really going to enjoy. Ross Richardson is an author and a shipwreck hunter on Lake Michigan. And he has, in fact, found several lost shipwrecks at the bottom of the Great Lakes. So he also has a website called Michigan Mysteries. And we're going to talk about ways that you can help support some of the work that he is doing in the recovery of lost shipwrecks, which we're going to get into a little bit later. Recently, I had the pleasure of attending one of his incredible talks, and he has been kind enough to take the time today to be on the show and bring you some of these stories directly. So we're going to talk about this incredible historical work that he and his team are involved in. So welcome to the program, Ross. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Michael. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Well, Ross, could you take a minute and just introduce yourself to the audience, tell them a little bit about what you do and how you got into this activity? Sure, sure. Um, I am an author and a shipwreck hunter. I've written a couple books. I I would probably put the shipwreck hunter first. That is my real passion is Mm -hmm. looking for shipwrecks and Great Lakes maritime history, which our entire state is surrounded by. Um, We really have an amazing uh, gift here with our Great Lakes because, you know, I always ask people to envision this picture finding a building somewhere downtown that's been sealed up in, since the 1870s or mm-hmm. the 1860s and opening the door and everything is just like it was back then. You just don't find that on dry land yet. We have hundreds of these underwater museums surrounding our state in, in the Great Lakes. Wow. I never looked at it that way. That's amazing. That is a, an amazing thought to consider. Wow. You mentioned when we talked earlier that um, one of your early discoveries was a wreck off the shore of Holland, Michigan. Is that right? Yes, yes. So I'm originally from the Grand Rapids area, uh-huh. and I've always been fascinated since I was, since I can remember, since I was a little kid, I've been fascinated by shipwrecks. We had a pool in the backyard, and I had older brothers, and they would build model ships, and we would sink them and go down and look at them with masks. <laughs> And I was fascinated by the Titanic story as well. So I've always just had that in my mind. Well, as I got older, I tied in with a group of really fantastic people at the Michigan Shipwreck Research Associates. Okay. Um, Valerie Van Heest, Craig Rich, Jack Van Heest, Jan Miller. I mean, really a talented group. And I was fortunate enough to kind of tie into that group and really learned a lot from those fine folks. And Early on, we did find some really amazing shipwrecks, like the SS Mich- Michigan off of Holland. Wow. Which was really my first major research project to really dig into. And what struck me about that ship is it's just so beautiful. It was a passenger ship. Okay. It was uh, based out of Grand Haven and was really quite a ship. And for it to go down off of Holland there... Uh, 
yeah, it was just one of those stories that captured my my imagination. But there's quite a few ships off of West Michigan. Uh, most of them have been discovered in the past 20 years. However, there's still one or two out there that need to be discovered. Okay, so how did the Michigan go down? That was that went out to look for a fleet mate during a winter storm. It was actually held up for the winter in Grand Haven, and mm-hmm. they had a storm, and the ship, I believe it was the Nyack or the Oneida, got lost out there, and the SS Michigan went out to try to find her and got trapped in the ice. Oh. A storm, the storm blew it all the way from Ludington area, almost Ludington, all the way down to South Haven, and an that late, it was a very cold winter that winter because Mount mm-hmm. Krakatoa had erupted a few years earlier and really made the winters a lot colder for about a decade. Okay. And Lake Michigan froze across and trapped the SS Michigan. Well, slowly the ice pack moved north, and eventually it broke the ship's hull and it sank 15 miles directly west of the Holland Harbor. Wow. So it went down with its crew or. Um... They all escaped. They oh, okay. took a lifeboat, a metal lifeboat. This was 1885. The ship was only three years old okay. and built in Michigan. My favorite shipwrecks are the ones that are built in Michigan mm-hmm. and uh, sank in Michigan water. So this was built over in the Detroit area by Detroit Dry Dock. And the crew escaped. They knew it was sinking. They grabbed a lifeboat. And again, the lake was frozen, so they pushed the lifeboat to get across any of the broken ice they had to, and eventually they made it to shore and made it back to the train in Holland and took the train back up to um, Grand Haven, you know, various with various forms of uh, 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 frostbite and things from that, you know, terrible journey. I can imagine that must be a heck of an ordeal. I've been out um, in the... uh... St. Joseph area when the lake is all frozen over and looked out over the waters and stuff. And it's not an even, it doesn't freeze evenly. So every inch of the way must have been a a painful journey. It's a cruel environment out there, very cold. And you think about back then, they didn't have the modern technology of waterproof items and thinsulate and things like that. So those were some rugged folks back there. We come from rugged folks. That's right. (laughs) So what's the oldest ship that you found? That would be the Westmoreland, which was built in 1853 and sank a year later. It was nearly brand new in 1854. Oh, my goodness. It was only out a year. Wow. Only a year old. The paint, you could still smell the fresh paint on her when she went down. Oh, my uh, gosh. Pretty amazing. Wow. So you, when you did your talk, we you talked a little bit about the hunt for the Westmoreland, and it wasn't wasn't a very easy process. It took a number of years, right, to find it? Yes, yes. I actually got pretty lucky with it, but I had searched the year earlier. I've been doing research on it for years, and the year earlier, I decided to buy a boat and start branching off on my own and looking for shipwrecks, and I realized the antiquated sonar equipment on this boat just wasn't going to cut it. But at about that time... um, Oh, let me think of the name of the company. Oh, I'll think of it. They released a Humminbird, released a new side scan, which was a new technology for basically fishermen, but it was way cheaper than the commercial stuff. And it did a good job. It didn't have the range of some of the expensive side scan, Mm -hmm. like Klein and things like that, but it was 
you know, a, a tenth of the cost. Wow. So I decided the following year to invest in this side scan sonar and went out searching for her with that. And it really opened up the bottom topography and made me understand why the Westmoreland had been hidden for 150 years. Wow. So it, what, what year did you find it? 2010. Oh, wow. Okay. And so there was a lot of myth and mystery about that ship, right? There was other people that had claimed to have found it. Is that right? And then they actually hadn't, or from your conclusion? Yes. Yeah. I, you know, in researching, I found about 10 major expeditions to look for it. And just about everybody claimed they discovered it and found it, which isn't uncommon in the shipwreck hunting world. Uh-huh. And when I ended up finding her, I realized with the condition she was in, where she was located, that nobody had found this wreck. And it was it was pretty deep water, 180 feet, and that would have been out of the range of many hard hat divers and things like that up until, you know, probably the 1970s, 1980s. Okay, so anybody and, who had claimed to have found it prior to the 70s or 80s was probably not looking at the same ship. Correct. Now, I believe the guys in 1936, they found the cabins. Okay. And the uh, and one of the articles from eyewitnesses that survived said that when the ship went down, the cabins broke off and lift. they lifted off the ship and stayed afloat, and they floated away and sank somewhere else. Oh, okay. So these guys in 1936, they gave a very vivid description of what they found. They said, hey, we found the top part of the ship, but the rest of it's buried under the sand. Okay. Not realizing it floated off the hull I and see. sank in that area. They just assumed uh, because of its closeness to Sleeping Bear Dune that the moving sands move things around. But I with see. the condition of the Westmoreland and how much it's out of the water, in that little area of Platte Bay, there doesn't appear to be any sand movement at all. Right. Now you, how did you conclude that you actually had the Westmoreland? You, you knew what the ship looked like from photos and a lot of uh, yes. careful inspection of details. And there's only a few ships like that missing in Lake Michigan. You could count them on one hand mm-hmm. and most of them have been accounted for, or there was one lost close by the general Taylor but I think we found the engine bed of that ship. It was a shore wreck that got beat to pieces over the years at Sleeping Bear Dune. Okay. So location-wise, it was within, within you know, a quarter mile of where one of the descriptions was from one of the eyewitnesses. So everything added up, and the ship was just exactly what you would expect, a hogarch steamer which the hogging arches are like a suspension bridge built over the boat. Okay. And 200 feet long, everything just matched perfectly so with it had this. those distinct arches and everything that you're, yes. you're describing. So now you have gone through and you've had photos done of it three-dimensional, so they have a scan now of the, of the ship that uh, yes. is available to be seen. That's amazing. That is quite amazing. We- That's the latest shipwreck hunting technology, photogrammetry, okay. which is taking one, two, three thousand images and putting them into a computer, and it creates a three D model of the of the wreck site based on these pictures. And it's uh, it's pretty new, but it is very thorough, and it shows you if you have an interest in seeing what Great Lake shipwrecks look like today, go to three D shipwrecks dot org and take a look at 
you know, hundreds of different shipwreck sites and different conditions and different configurations. Wow. Okay. That was what I was going to ask you next is to share that website with folks because that was the images that you showed in your talk was quite amazing. And I think that just adds so much to the understanding of how some of these ships are uh, go down, you know, and, um, so can we go into some of the history of some of the recovered artifacts? Um, do you work with maritime museums in Michigan to preserve some artifacts? Or do you, I mean, what is the, the policy on artifacts when they're found? Or do you bring any up, that sort of thing? We don't bring any up. There's, so the, the law is, the Abandoned Shipwreck Act of 1987, is everything needs to stay down there. Okay. You're not allowed to take, bring things up unless you have permission from the state, and that's pretty difficult to get. Okay. Uh, a group of us are working on doing a culture shift, really, with, with artifacts because with the introduction of invasive species into our lakes, they're not the stable environment they used to be. Things are deteriorating quickly. And if we leave everything down there, we're gonna lose these artifacts to time. They're basically gonna disintegrate away and we're never gonna be able to see them. We're never gonna be able to share them. So we're gonna look at teaming up with a corporation and a historical society slash museum mm -hmm. and recovering some artifacts and preserving them and displaying them to the public at no cost to the public. Wow, that's a great, that's a so, big project. I, I think so. And I think it's going to be an uphill battle and we really need to shift the culture against this the idea of preserving stuff is leaving it down there because things don't last forever. It used to be the water temperature was 39 degrees. There would never be sunlight. And maybe 40 years ago when these shipwrecks, you know, that sank in, you know, let's say 1900, you know, these shipwrecks were only 70 years old. Well, now they're, you know, approaching a hundred years on the bottom. Huh. That's a big difference. There's a big difference and things decay over time. So, you know, we're starting to lose things down there and, Maybe we should look at what to save. We can't save it all. It doesn't make sense to save it all, but there are some historic items mm -hmm. that might be of interest to local local folks. Yeah, that makes so total sense. Have you found any uh, or been involved in any searches for wrecks off of St. Joseph, for example, or that, that part of the Great Lakes? Yes, there is an airplane that disappeared in 1950, that's Northwest Airlines Flight 2501. Okay. And my buddy Craig Rich wrote a fantastic article about this plane. Now, the plane disappeared in 1950. It was an, a Northwest Airlines DC-4. It had 58 people on board, and it flew out over Lake Michigan somewhere near St. Joe, uh, Benton Harbor, and vanished wow. in a June thunderstorm. And... Craig wrote this great article and it ended up on the desk of author Clive Cussler. Huh. And Clive Cussler was intrigued and wanted to team up with the Michigan Shipwreck Research Associates based out of Holland. Okay. And we did team up with them. And that's where I got a lot of sonar training was with the NUMA search crew. Clive Cussler has a team called the NUMA team. Okay. And it's based on his books, but it's it's a real group, and they're they're the ones who have discovered the Confederate sub, the Hunley. 
Oh, okay. And numerous other shipwrecks. So they would come out every April for a month. And I got to spend a lot of time with them over. They did this over a decade and found many shipwrecks off the West Michigan coast. Wow. So, so to, that's really where I, today they still have not found that aircraft though, right? It's still, no, that air, airplane has not been located. It's really baffling when you see the huge amount of area they've covered Wow. And the Michigan Shipwreck Research Associates are still looking for this aircraft. Interesting. Yeah, that's a that's a mystery. Was it, and they, they don't have any um, last recording of why the uh, the sh- the plane went down. To, or just communication was cut off and it disappeared. Yes. Yeah, so it flew into a thunderstorm okay. that scared most pilots off the off the lake and, and onto the ground, it was pretty severe and they flew into it. So that probably had something to do with it. This aircraft also occasionally had a, occasionally would, was known to flip over on its back. Ooh. So if it got hit with strong winds, perhaps it, 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 it flipped over on its back and it didn't have time to correct. Um, and flying over the water is extremely difficult. So there's a chance the pilot could have drove it right into the water and not even knew what he was doing. The flying over water is probably one of the most difficult aspects of flying. Wow. And there's some other lost uh, aircraft searches that you've been involved in with your group. Is it? Yes. We, we just had a meeting last night about an airplane that disappeared in 2007 in the Straits of Mackinac uh, near the Sheboygan area. It took off from, the Mackinac Island airport Hmm. with a couple aboard and vanished. So that's our latest project. We're working on some different ways to try to find it for a interested family member who would like to see the aircraft recovered. Uh, There is a plane off of Benton Harbor, a Navy bomber that crashed about 19... 50-ish, something like that, that was they stripped all the machine guns off it and then brought it out to about 100 feet of water and scuttled it out there. So I think that would be a neat plane to find. I know a couple of guys that are kind of looking for that, but there's a nice piece of uh, naval history sitting out there. Wow, that's interesting. Off of uh, Benton Harbor, St. Joe, and you had about 100 feet of water. Now, that one with the couple that was lost up near the Mackinac area, that was that a Cessna or something of that size? It was called a, tri- yes, it was about that size. It was a Trinidad, uh, I hope I don't butcher the Sabato, oh, Sabata. Okay. It was a small aircraft, but it was very sleek, very fast, um, retractable landing gear. It was a, maybe a little bit bigger than, than a Cessna. And that could be and, in the water or it could be in the forest. Is that right? No, that one's in the that one's in the water. It's in the water somewhere. Uh, okay. The the pilot's body was recovered just two hundred feet from the Mackinac Bridge North Pylon. Oh, okay. I believe, but the passenger is still missing as well as the aircraft. I see. Um, there is another aircraft that I've been heavily involved in, and that is the Block Cessna. Okay, that's which the one disappeared. That you, yeah. Yeah, July 4th, 1977. As a matter of fact, I'm good friends with their son, John Block, who's a retired Grand Traverse County Sheriff's detective. Mm -hmm. And we get together. We're due probably later this week or next week. We get together at the Flapjack Shack, a local restaurant, and have, uh, 
you know, some pancakes and coffee and talk about, you know, cases that are going on, but also about his parents mm-hmm. who, who simply vanished. And I'm involved with a group of people. We have a group of probably six, seven of us that are actively looking for this aircraft that disappeared in 1977. Wow. Yeah, that would bring closure to the family for sure if they were able to find him, I, you know. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, you know, to have your parents disappear, they were in their, their well, right about my age, mid-50s. Wow. And to vanish on the 4th of July where everybody's out, it was a beautiful summer day. Hmm. It's it's really one of those baffling mysteries. Wow. So on your website, I noticed there was this uh, section that you deal with unrecovered drowning victims. Does that involve, like, what you were talking about, bodies with people that went down in the Lake Michigan, or is that something else? Yes. Um, I, I don't have Lake Michigan because the bodies move around in Lake Michigan and they're very hard to uh, recover, but these are inland lakes okay. in northern Michigan. And for for almost a decade, I was on the Benzie area public safety dive team, which worked in conjunction with the Benzie County Sheriff's Department. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, and for folks, I live in Benzie County, which is a very small county in Northern Michigan. We have a year round population of about 18,000 people in the entire county. Okay. So very rural and not a lot of, uh, not a lot of assets, not a lot of things. So we do a lot of volunteer work up here. So I was a volunteer diver. Oh, I see. And it got me interested in these bodies. that Because you don't think when you're swimming in these nice lakes up north mm-hmm. that there's bodies in there. But a lot of these lakes have unrecovered bodies in them. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That goes way back yeah. a number of years, right? Yeah, 10, 20, 30 years. One one is from the 80s. Wow. And it's just, it's very hard to find a body. As a matter of fact, the sonar has improved that maybe in the past five years, there's sonar good enough to find these bodies. But uh, before then, it was very hard to find bodies with existing sonar. And to ask a rural police department or sheriff's department to invest you know, 60,000, 90,000 in this equipment. It's just, it's too difficult to, uh-huh. you know, fathom and the countless hours they would take to find a body. But now there's some volunteer groups out there that are helping recover these bodies. So, wow. so with searching for shipwrecks, let's kind of go back to that again. What was your biggest surprise when searching for a lost ship? I think I guess surprise, maybe mystery would be the W.C. Kimball, which is a mm-hmm. beautiful little coastal schooner I discovered uh, near Sleeping Bear Point, South Manitou Island. Mm-hmm. And this ship was just in such beautiful, perfect condition. And first off, I didn't know what it was, so it took me six months to identify it. But then to have such a beautiful shipwreck and then, you know, what's it doing here? Wow. So it, it took us some detective work to figure out what happened to the crew, what happened to the boat, why it's there, and why it's in such am- amazing shape. Now, yeah, so you call it beautiful. So it was beautiful because it was intact. Is that right? It was still... Oh, yeah. Uh, it had both top masts still up. Wow. Which is usually the masts, when a ship wrecks, it wrecks. So the masts come down. I mean, there's things are busted up. Mm-hmm. But I've never seen a... Uh, a a schooner like that with both top masts still up and no 
sign of damage on this vessel. It even had the yawl boat sitting at the stern, which it was hooked on hemp ropes when it sank. And eventually those rotted away and the the boat just fell to the bottom after a couple decades. But it's sitting right there. And then to wonder, why is the lifeboat still here? Right. In this, in the boat sinking, you so know, it was essentially sitting right on the bottom as if it had been on the top of the water. It just went straight yes. down. Well, and what did you guys determine? That, how did that happen? Based on your research, you, you at first it was a bit of a mystery, and then you, you, you mentioned in the talk that you guys had finally come up with a conclusion of what happened to that ship, that schooner. Yeah. Yes. Yes. We looked at the time of year, which was May. And Lake Michigan, especially northern Lake Michigan, takes quite a while to heat up. So the water temperature was probably still in the mid-30s at that point in time. And uh, a spring gale came through. The air temperatures probably dropped down into the teens. And, of course, the spray, when the waves hit the boat, the spray and the waves froze on the boat and eventually encased it in ice to the point where it lost a buoyancy and, and sank, but it sank oh so gently and covered in ice holding everything there that it just went down to the bottom wow. in this near perfect condition. Amazing. And that was a, a crew that was semi inexperienced. Is that kind of how you would describe there, it? There were a couple inexperienced guys. Now they've only had they only had this boat for about a year. The boat was only three years old when it sank, and there's a whole interesting history about the gentleman who was building it going insane in, uh, <laughs> over in over in Wisconsin, Manitowoc. Wow. And then the boat sat around for a year after he died, and then this these folks from Northport bought it about a year or two after it was built. So it was built in 1888, and she disappeared in 1891, early 1891. Wow. So another boat that's pretty new. And the captain and first mate had some experience. However, they had a friend with them who was a newspaper guy. Uh-huh. And they picked up a Norwegian teenager, 19-year-old gentleman, uh, to fill in for an injured crewman. So they weren't the most experienced crew I see. to get hit by that little spring gale. Wow. So you find these ships wrecks, but there's a lot of hundreds and hundreds of hours that go into searching and not finding anything you know with with each of these projects that so what would you say is your best and worst experience in this kind of process that you've been through i think the worst situation out there is when you get hit with the black flies (laughs) and if you get really now these black black flies are like born on the water they don't come from shore so when you're 15 20 miles offshore your boat can be covered with them and they bite wow and the only thing you can do to keep them off is to keep spraying yourself with deep woods off with deep but that only lasts five or ten minutes so you can go through a whole can you almost have to keep your skin wet with it wow and those little buggers hurt so we have little uh fly swatters in the boat and we just are constantly hit and by the time we get back to shore the boat is covered black and fly guts <laughs> welts we got welts all over our skin but it's you know you got to go out there when it's flat and yeah. during that black fly season oh it's terrible wow in mid season two are these little uh, noceums these tiny little midge flies mm-hmm. 
And we've been out there where they're so heavy and they cover everything. Like when you eat a sandwich, mm-hmm. they cover your sandwich and you just, oh, well, and you just eat the flies <laughs> with your sandwich. You just don't have a choice. They're just everywhere. You drink them and you just finally, it's part of the environment. Yeah. It's what you got to put up with when you're out there. But that's, uh, I would say that's the worst. Mm-hmm. Um, breaking down on the water, I've rarely done. That's not fun either. But I think the the greatest thing that happens is when you find a shipwreck, that excitement that, you know, you've hunted for, you know, two years. It's been two years, three years since your latest find. And then you find one. And it's like, oh, man. And it's, then the excitement builds and the questions start. What is this? Right. You know, what am I looking at? What are we, you know, and putting the pieces of that puzzle together to finally figure out the mystery. And how do you identify that it's not one that has been found before by somebody else? How do you know that? I'm a pretty nerdy guy, so I know all the shipwrecks that have been found and all the, okay. you know, and being a diver for many years, I kind of know which ones have been found, which ones, where they are, who's dove what. Okay. And... You know, my interest is in shipwrecks that haven't been discovered yet, shipwreck sites, and also ones that are obscure that people may not have heard of. There's a few out there that I know if I get lucky enough and do find them, people are just going to be like, what? Because I know they never heard of this stuff. Wow. Early stuff, obscure stuff, and I love that. So are most of them recorded with longitude and latitude of where they are? Once we find them. Uh, then we have the the numbers. Now, there is no official thing you do with the shipwrecks. I For see. instance, some people uh, report them to the state. I don't report them to the state, however, though I am friendly with, uh, with the state. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I'll release them to the public and open them up to the diving community in the hopes that they come out and dive these wrecks and share photographs and video of the wreck site. However, there are a few like the WC Kimball where I keep the location secret because those top masts, again, if somebody goes down and grapples and pull rips down a top mast, mm-hmm. uh, boy, I just couldn't handle that. Yeah, you know? That would ruin a beautiful, pristine ship. Yeah. So what is the, um, the role of the Maritime Heritage Alliance? I saw that you sit on the board of that organization. Yes, we're based out of Traverse City, mm-hmm. and we operate the tall ship Madeline, which is a replica of an 1840s schooner built right here in uh, Traverse City. I live in Lake Ann, which is, we're about 12 miles west of Traverse City. Okay. So... The Maritime Heritage Alliance operates a number of vehicles. We also build wood boats and things like that and and share our maritime heritage with folks. So it's really quite a wonderful organization. I got involved in, in the attempt to learn model making. They had a model maker there. And many of the shipwrecks I find, like the Jarvis Lord or the W.C. Kimball or the Westmoreland, uh-huh. There are no photographs, there are no blueprints, and there are no models. Okay. So I wanted to build models of these ships so people could see what they look like. Yeah. And that's how I got involved. So I I work on building wood models and replicas of the shipwrecks I find. Wow, that sounds like a lot of fun. Very fascinating. Probably educational for kids, too. They can see the the ships. Yes, they love love the ship models. Uh, It keeps me so... 
in the summer, I have a workshop in the basement. In the summer, forget it. I don't even go down there for months because it's go time in the summer to mm-hmm. take advantage of the short, right. beautiful weather. But once the snow's flying, like uh, we get a week or two from now, I'll, I'll be in the workshop for a few months, uh, you know, building some of these ship models and doing some woodworking and stuff. I gotcha. So can we talk a little bit about your books? You've got a few books out there about some of your work that you've been involved in. Can we go over some yes. titles and where can people buy some of those books at? Absolutely. Um, probably my favorite book is the search for the Westmoreland. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was my first book at a detailed look at the history of the shipwreck and other people's uh, search attempts, because I was very interested in my predecessors. I kind of understood their, their fascination with finding shipwrecks, but some of the, you know, archaic techniques they used were pretty amazing, yet they went out and accomplished a lot using those techniques. Okay. And then, of course, I I talk about the discovery and the condition of the wreck now. And, you know, the big thing about the Westmoreland is it was rumored to have gold and whiskey aboard. Okay. So that created quite a lot of uh, interest in the shipwreck site. I would bet, yeah. It makes sense for the gold. Were people interested in recovering the whiskey? Is there value in that? or? I think there is. Okay. I think there is. And I, I, I've been teaming up with Mammoth Distilling, and they have a process through Michigan State University where they said if they could get a barrel that's even highly diluted with just a little bit of whiskey, there's a way to extract that and get the chemical makeup of that whiskey so we can taste what their whiskey tastes like in 1854, which is really intriguing to me because, you know, we see history, we hear history, but to smell and taste history, now we're talking another level. And it's also a great outreach for people who might not realize you know, what a treasure we have in the Great Lakes surrounding Michigan. That would be really cool to see that recovered and then maybe get some kind of uh, a royalty or something for your preservation organization that every time somebody buys a bottle of that, a little bit of money goes towards, uh, you know, preserving some of these wrecks or setting, you know, setting it up so that there's a, you know, some kind of a, a fee that goes towards the work that you guys are doing. That would be a great great thing to go on because i know a lot of people out there love the spirits and drink and have some would would venture out there and probably get a bottle of the stuff just to support the organization you know we we have discussed coming up with a a line of shipwreck whiskeys from different shipwrecks Mm -hmm. and we can create this using wood maybe broken off the side of the ship that no one would ever know was gone Mm -hmm. a small piece of wood that we could cut into staves and then we can toast those and add those to the barrels and actually flavor whiskey with the wood from the shipwreck. Wow. So each one might have a, a little different flavor to it, depending on where that wood came from. That's so, it, and again, it would be a great way to share our history with people who might not normally be interested, but, mm-hmm. you know, now they can yeah, see and hear it, but then taste it as well. Interesting. <laughs> That's a great idea. So what's your, the other book that you had um, at, at your talk? What was that title? Still, Still Missing, which is based on my website, michiganmysteries.com, which is dedicated to stories of missing persons, missing aircraft, and missing missing ships okay. all around Michigan. 
And for that book, I took each of my favorite, well, I wouldn't say favorite, but each of very intriguing stories of things that are missing and kind of put them into one book. So you have a shipwreck story, a missing aircraft story, and a missing person story. Okay, great. So where can people get copies of your books? Are they on Amazon, or is there a, a website you'd prefer we refer them to? Uh, my website, michiganmysteries.com. We have a little store there okay. that we sell books through, so you can order them there. Okay. Now, in your talk, you mentioned that you have a sort of a foundation or organization uh, that people could maybe throw a donation your way to help support the work that you guys are doing for recovering wrecks and finding some of these lost wrecks. Uh, no, no, no. I operate privately okay. and uh, I just ask that people, hey, buy a book that helps out okay. tremendously. Okay, good. So they should buy some books as, a, you know, um, get them out there to friends and family out there. Uh, so let me ask you this question. How, how many shipwrecks are actually out in the, the, the Great Lakes that are not found? That That's a good question. It's almost an unknowable question you know in lake michigan there's probably another hundred deep water shipwreck sites okay maybe more maybe more so but a a hundred i would say there's at least a hundred deeper than 60 feet you know a considerable shipwreck still there okay so that's just in lake michigan of course we have the other great lakes that there's ships that have gone down in lake superior and other places as well right yeah, and I would say, you know, average out probably 100 per lake. Maybe Huron has, you know, 200. But there's been an amazing amount of discoveries in Lake Huron. And really the rate of ex- the rate of discovery is accelerating because of this great sonar equipment that's a lot cheaper. Oh. And the research as well as more archives become digitized, you can now do the research from home or before you'd have to travel to local libraries and historical societies and even perhaps, you know, hubs for record keeping for the, the Smithsonian and things to get these records. Now they're being digitized okay. in a way that's easy, ser- easily searchable. So you can do most of your research from home. That's great. That's great. Well, any last uh, stories that you want to tell before we wrap up today, Ross? Well, my friends at the Michigan Shipwreck Research Associates, I need to give them a call. They have a shipwreck discovery. I think they discovered the Endaced, which is a freighter which disappeared going from Grand Haven to uh, Chicago in 1929. Disappeared with a full crew, 25 people, I believe. Yeah. Somewhere off of South Haven. So, but it's probably mid lake. Um, okay. Now they have a, They made they made an announcement that they discovered something, but I'm real curious to hear what they found and see the footage and see if we can figure out, you know, why that ship sank. Wow. So they they think they found that ship. What was the name of it again? The uh, it's normally they I think it's pronounced the Endaste, though everybody calls it the Endaste. Oh. A n d. A-S-T-E. And that's, I featured the story of that um, wreck in my book, Still Missing. I have a whole chapter on it. Okay. 
And it was quite an interesting wreck. It disappeared. And then about five days later, bodies started washing up. Well, it was the boat was based out of Grand Haven. Wow. So the bodies started washing up around Holland, then Port Sheldon, and then at Grand Haven, including one crewman who washed up within a mile of his home. Wow. Wow. That that's um uh, that'd be an interesting discovery if they've actually found it, you know. That would probably make some statewide news at least, maybe some national news. It was Oh, I think so. That's a that's a great discovery. And again, it's just these there was uh when we started researching, there was like ten vessels that were on our list to find. Yeah. And I would say eight or nine of them have been found already just in the past 20 years. So wow. um, there's going to come a time in the next probably 10 years that almost every shipwreck is going to be discovered. Wow. Okay. And the shipwreck hunters will become, instead of looking for history, they'll become history. Wow. Well, maybe you'll become the preservationist and float some of these old wrecks and preserve them and put them in museums or that sort of thing, you know. There's always good, we're, we're storytellers and there's always good stories to share. Wow. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on today, Ross. Um, a lot of interesting material. We'll definitely have to have you back on at some point. And uh, I will put the link in the show note descriptions for people that want to get uh, access to your website. And once again, it's michiganmysteries.com. Yes. Okay. And so go to that, folks. If not, I'll put the link as a reminder in the show notes so that you guys can get copies of his books. And it's definitely uh, fascinating to hear him talk, and he does talks periodically around Michigan. So check out his website, and I'm sure he's posting notices of where he's speaking next. Uh, just a great, great time listening to you, Ross. You have so many amazing stories to tell. I really greatly appreciate you coming on today. Thanks, Michael. I appreciate that. Yep. And as always, folks, if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a rating or review on whatever app that you are listening on. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And you can reach out to Ross Richardson at michiganmysteries.com. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening.